Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, find verse 12. I'm going to teach a sample of a lesson I am teaching back home in Los Angeles. Uh, it's a spiritual warfare lesson, but specifically this morning we're going to talk about the gates of hell and how they will not prevail. I don't know if you were aware, but Jesus said the gates of hell, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against his church. So let's look at a few things regarding that. First Timothy six, verse 12. Are you there? All right. It reads, fight the good fight of what? Fight the good fight of Faith. So our fight is a faith fight, and it is also a good fight. Our fight is a faith fight, but it is also a good fight. And it is a good fight because we win. It's a good fight because we've won. And because we've won, we win. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Head to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Ephesians 6:10. Oh, it's good to be with you hungry folk again. All right. Ephesians 6, verse 10 reads, Finally, my brethren, be strong in something. Actually, be strong in someone and in something. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of my might. In the power of your might. No, it says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I don't have to be strong in myself. I can be strong in him. And not in the power of my might, but in the power of his might. Verse 11, put on something, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to do something, stand against the wiles of the devil. Put on the whole armor, not part of the armor, not some of the armor. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil are the tricks of the devil. The cunning deceitfulness of the adversary. Paul is telling us putting on the whole armor allows us to stand against his tricks. Allows us to stand against his deceitfulness. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our fight, remember now it's a good fight, and it's good because we win, but now we're getting a little more clarity regarding this fight. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. You don't fight people. I know you've probably had a few arguments with some individuals, but really we are combating spirits that influence the behavior of people. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but let me tell you what we do wrestle against, principalities, 
powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts, hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul says that the enemy has at his disposal hosts. Now we know our God is the Lord of hosts. The Hebrew word is Sava. It, it indicates God's heavenly army. So, so the angels, the, the cherubim, the seraphim, and other celestial creatures submitted to God are a part of his hosts. But now, Paul is telling us that we're wrestling against certain types of heavenly creatures known as principalities, powers, or rulers of the darkness, or princes of the darkness of this age, or this world system, against spiritual hosts. So he has hosts also. Where did his host come from? How is it that he has uh, soldiers and angels at his disposal? Where did the enemy get hosts from? Well, he got his host from God's host. Our Revelation 12 tells us that the tail of the dragon drew a third of the stars, which tells us from the beginning of his fall, he has had influence over one third of the hosts. He's had influence over one third of all of the heavenly and celestial creatures God ever created. One third. And how many is that? Well, well, Hebrews 12, 22, the writer says in one location, they were innumerable. Too many to count. Now, let me establish two things. Number one, there are not unlimited angels. There are not infinite angels. Because if there are infinite angels, God is still making them right now as we speak. And that's not the case. There are not infinite angels. There are innumerable angels. We know that there are not infinite because you cannot take one third of infinity. You can only take one-third of a finite number. Now, we don't know that finite number. That number is way above our pay grade. <laughs> but God has a finite number of hosts, and the adversary has influence over one-third of innumerable spiritual hosts whom you and I wrestle against. Verse 13, therefore do what? Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to do something. Withstand in the what? Evil day. And having done all, to stand, stand therefore. Let's read verse 13 again. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand therefore. It's a lot of standing. And I'm here to tell you, saints, you are not allowed, you are not qualified to stand unless you've done all. If you haven't done all, you need to remain seated. Stand having done all. All right, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now, first he told me to put on the whole armor of God to stand against what? The wiles of the devil. So I put on the whole armor to stand against the wiles of the devil. I take up the whole armor to withstand in the evil day. 
What's the difference between putting on the armor and taking up the armor? Putting on the armor means a fight is coming. Taking up the armor means the fight is here. So I put on the whole armor to do what? Stand against the wiles or the tricks or the cunning deceitfulness of the devil. But according to verse 13, I take up the whole armor of God that I may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now notice, wiles of the devil, evil day, very general. Very general. What makes up an evil day? Seems like every day is evil. In the world we live in today, every day. Every hour, every minute, every second, all the time is evil. So evil day, that's general. Wiles of the devil. Notice the verse doesn't mention a specific wile, a specific trick. So it's general. Let's continue and see if it gets more specific. Verse 14. Stand therefore having done what? Having girded your waist with truth or your loins with truth. Having put on the what? Breastplate of righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Okay, notice verse 14 says that my loins are covered. My waist is covered. All right, the belt that I wear in battle holds my weaponry. And then I put on the breastplate, right, to cover my chest, to cover my heart, to cover my core. My, my feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I'm able to make the long journey. I'm able to, to, to stand in the midst of battle. Notice what it says in verse 16, though, above all. Above all. Well, what does above all mean? Uh, above all. I, I, I've mentioned a number of things to you up until this point, but above all, above all what? Taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to do something, quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Notice it gets specific now. Notice the entirety of the armor deals with the wiles of the devil. The entirety of the armor deals with the evil day. But one specific piece of armor deals with one specific attack. Above all, taking the shield of faith because the shield of faith specifically deals with the fiery darts. The arrows, the shield of faith. In other words, the most important piece of the armor is related to faith. Amen. Righteousness is mentioned. The gospel of peace is mentioned. If we continue on with verse 17, the helmet of salvation. Salvation is mentioned that covers the head and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. What's interesting is that all of these things are found in the word of God and yet, above all, taking faith. You know that thing we live by? 24-7? You know, you, know, you know, without it, there is no pleasing God? So, so faith specifically guards me or protects me from the darts. The javelins, the missiles, that's literally what this word means in the Greek. Arrow, dart, missile, spear. It's faith that protects me from those specific attacks. 
All right. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. I believe that verse 18 covers another weapon that Paul did not mention. Let me share with you that the Roman armor consisted of more than what we've read. As a matter of fact, literally, the word armor in the Greek includes these pieces of the armor, the shield, which is mentioned, the sword, which is mentioned, the helmet, which is mentioned, the breastplate, which is mentioned, but the definition includes two other pieces of armor that Paul does not mention. But clearly it would have to be implied. One of the main reasons we know it would have to be implied is that when Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, he mentions the breastplate of faith and love. So to the Ephesian church, it was the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith. To the Thessalonian church, it was the breastplate of faith and love, which means there is a greater emphasis on what the armor represents. Okay, so with that being the case, I believe verse 18 refers to the lance. Prayer. Because prayer goes long distance. That's what the lance was for. The lance was for long distance attacks. The lance also kept the enemy at a distance. Prayer does both. And then also there are the, the greaves, also known as the shin guards. That's implied in this definition. So, Paul says, put on the whole armor. He never tells us to take it off. You don't find anywhere in scripture where you're told, where you're commanded to take the armor off. You put it on, you leave it on. You eat with it on, you sleep with it on, you do all your business with the armor on. You never take it off. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10, find verse 1. All right. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. All right, now look at what he says immediately after that. Let me read the latter part of verse two again. Go right into the beginning of verse three. He says, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh, for though we walk in the flesh. Okay, Paul just said we walk in the flesh. He just said right now, he said, for though we walk in the flesh. Now, I want to make sure that Paul is not contradicting himself. So I need to mention something that he wrote to the Galatian church. Chapter 5, verse 16, he says, walk in the spirit so you do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk in the spirit so you do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, walk in the spirit so you do not walk in the flesh. So he's telling the Galatian church, do not walk in the flesh. And he's telling the Corinthian church, we do walk in the flesh. Is Paul confused? No, he's talking about two different things. 
to the Galatian uh, church he was writing and to all who are called to be saints. He was writing, walk according to your born again spirit so you do not fulfill the lust of your unsaved flesh. In other words, Paul was saying, if you walk in the spirit or walk according to your born again spirit, you will not walk according to your unsaved flesh. When Paul says we walk in the flesh here, he's saying, though our spirits are housed in flesh, we don't live according to the flesh our spirits are housed in. Okay. So he says, for though we walk in the flesh, watch this, we don't fight or we don't war according to the flesh. Didn't he tell us that in Ephesians? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So he says, we don't war according to the flesh. We're housed in flesh. I, I am a spirit. I have a soul. I live in flesh. Right? You do not need your flesh to be you but you need your flesh to live here. See, God created, God created human spirits in his image according to his likeness, and he created them, watch this, not to live in heaven. Yeah, I, 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 don't, know if you, I don't know if you knew this. Uh, we weren't created for heaven. We came from heaven, but we weren't created for heaven. We were created for earth. In the very beginning, he created a man and he told the man to live. T tell me where in the scripture God told the man to die. So tell me where he told Adam to die, where he commanded Adam to die. He didn't. He said, if you eat the fruit of this particular tree, surely you will die, which means it's not my will that you die. I created you to live. He disobeyed God and he began to die physically. Now, as a result of dying physically, when we get to the end, for example, you and I as New Testament believers, those of us who have received Jesus as Savior and Lord, when we die, our spirits leave our bodies to go be with the Lord, but that's not our final destination. Because if you want to know how the book ends, go to the end of the book. And when you go to the end of the book, you find out we're on earth. Otherwise, what's the purpose of the resurrection? What's the purpose in our bodies being redeemed? In the very end, see, see, watch this. God, God's plans never change. We're fickle. People change. God's plan, God doesn't deviate from his original plan. We started off in a perfect earth. We are going to end on a perfect earth. And, and, and by the way, by the way, and it's the same earth. When John said, I saw a new earth, John wasn't saying the old earth has been eliminated, eradicated. It no longer exists and God's now made a new earth. No, when John said, I saw a new earth, he was specifically saying, I saw the earth made new. Because there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with, with God's creation. There's nothing wrong with God's products. The flaw didn't come from the factory. The flaw is in the sin nature that has affected the product that came from the factory. Yes. Remove the sin, the product is perfect. So God's not in the business of making new things. He makes things new. Right? Remember when you got born again? God did not reach into your flesh, pull out your old spirit, 
blow it away and insert into your flesh a new spirit. No, 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 no. When you got born again, God didn't make a new you. He made you new. Because he does not make new things. He makes things new. God would never buy a new car, ever. He'd buy one car and continuously restore it. He'd make the car new. He'd make his home new. Because that's the business he's in. He makes things new. Okay, so while I'm here, I'm housed in flesh. Remember, I don't need a body to be me. I just need a body to live here because I was created to live here. So he says, verse three, for though we walk in the flesh. Yes, I understand that I walk in the flesh. I understand that my spirit is housed in flesh. He says, but we don't war. We don't fight according to the flesh. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not what? They're not carnal. They're not fleshly. But they're mighty in God for pulling down what? Okay, if you have a new King James Version, it reads strongholds. One word. But, but I like the traditional better because it separates them. All right, in other words, Paul was saying the weapons of our warfare, and by the way, this word warfare also means military service and campaign. So this is not a, a, a one evening fight. This is a campaign. The moment you're born again, you, you, the moment you're born again, you become a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Now, the kingdom of darkness will observe your life. And unfortunately, some people that got born again over time to the devil, they were worth nothing. Which means there's no point in wasting any ammunition on a non-essential target. You're not a threat. So I'm not going to bother with you. But when every unbeliever becomes a believer, that's a potential threat to his kingdom. So he's, on, he's in observation mode. So this is a campaign. All right. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down holds. What kind? Strong ones. Strongholds. Not just any kind of hold, but strong Holds. And what's a stronghold? A stronghold is a fortress. A stronghold is a castle. Anyone ever uh, uh, read or are you familiar with the story of Troy? Okay, the wall could not be breached. The wall was never going to be breached. Uh, Agamemnon had more soldiers than King Priam of Troy. But his army that he amassed would have never breached the walls of Troy. It would have never breached that stronghold. That's why they came up with the idea of the Trojan horse. Because there's no way they were going to get through. That's what a stronghold is. It's a fortress, right? And if you stay on top of your fortress, the enemy cannot breach. But as soon as you drop your guard, and it looks like the enemy has disappeared and he left you a present, What's on the inside of that Trojan horse? An entire army waiting to lay waste to your territory. I stay on guard. Peter said, be watchful, be sober, be vigilant. I'm always alert. 
Always. I'm never sleeping. Spiritually. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, they're not fleshly, but they are mighty. Mighty in who? Mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments or what? Imaginations. So that tells me where this fight's taking place. Imaginations. Casting down arguments or imaginations and every high thing that what? Exalts itself against the knowledge of God. There are high things that will attempt to exalt themselves above God's knowledge. And hopefully you'll partake. That's the enemy's desire. Casting down arguments or imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing how many thoughts? Every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Notice it says bringing every thought, not some thoughts, not the thoughts you like. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You cannot stop thoughts from coming. Thoughts come. But once a thought comes, you are in the driver's seat. And you decide whether that thought is going to take up residence in your mind and make a home. And if you meditate on it long enough, you'll give birth to that thought. So every thought has to be measured according to the word of God. Okay, good thought comes. I take the good thought. I still take the good thought into captivity. Measure it according to the word. Oh, it's a good one. It lines up. I'm keeping it. But the bad ones come the same way. I arrest it. I chain it. I capture it. Measure it according to the word. Up. Oh, it doesn't line up with the word. It's got to go. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So we see, look, Paul says the weapons of our warfare, so we're in war. Paul said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against, we fight against. And notice it's a wrestling match. Right? So 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 there's a back and forth here. There 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 is a struggle. There is a tug of war. If I'm not careful, I can give up or give in. But Paul said we wrestle. Paul said we are in war, that there is warfare going on. He also said fight the good fight. So we're in a fight. But for the remaining half hour, I want to talk about no longer being passive and waiting for the fight to come to us. We're going to start taking a fight to him. Yeah. All right. Look at Matthew 16. I recommend you put your seatbelts on now. Matthew 16. Verse 13. Y'all know what you got yourselves into letting me have a microphone, so. Matthew 16. All right, fine, verse 13. All right, it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, what they saying about me? What they saying? Talk to me. Disciples, what they saying about me? What you done heard? He asked his disciples, saying, who do men, who do men say that I am? Because I know they're talking. Who do they say that I 
the son of man am. So they said, okay, well, some say, some say John the Baptist. Doesn't seem like that would make sense, though. John the Baptist baptized the Christ. So how could the Christ be John the Baptist? As a matter of fact, John the Baptist went to prison and then he was beheaded. Don't see how that one lines up, but nevertheless, some are saying, some are talking, and they're saying, maybe John the Baptist. Some say, Elijah. Okay, maybe I can see why they might consider Elijah. Because see, Elijah didn't die. Uh, Elijah was, was taken alive. The only other person I know that was taken alive before Elijah was Enoch. So Elijah was taken alive. That means he didn't see death. But in order to exist in the presence of God, because sinful flesh cannot exist in the presence of God. So in order for Elijah to be in the presence of God, there had to be a bodily translation that took place before he reached the presence of God. So that translation most likely took place in that whirlwind. Because the Bible says he was caught up in a, in a whirlwind. Now, now, now we're familiar with, with a whirlwind and what a whirlwind is, but, but I submit to you, um, really what that was, it was, a, it was a portal. It, it, was, a, it was a tear in the fabric of time. Because that's the only way you can get to heaven. You can't get to heaven any other way. Yeah, you, you, you got to go, go through a door. Yeah, you got to go through a door. You got to go through a gate. You have to. Because you can't get there by going up. Now, Jesus, Jesus is a different case, right? Because Jesus, at the time he ascended, he was the resurrection. Right? So he had a body that could, because the Bible says that he ascended and the disciples were looking until they could see him no more. And the last thing they saw was a cloud meet him and he continued to ascend. Now I submit to you, he was in a glorified body and his glorified body breached the atmosphere and entered into space and it did not affect his body because glorified bodies cannot die. While he was in space, he made a public spectacle of all the other principalities and powers that were taking up residence in the second heaven. Right? And then he made his way into the third heaven. Okay, but he's a special case. There is no other individual with a resurrected body until later. So, someone like an Elijah who was not resurrected, there had to be a bodily translation. All right? Now, you can't get to, if I were right now, if I were to just go up, I'd be going up forever. I'd, I'd be going up forever. Even if I figured out how to get past the Earth's atmosphere, even if I figured out how to build a rocket ship that never ran out of fuel, I had an unlimited supply of food, it would be fruitless. I would never make it to heaven for two reasons. Reason number one, scientists claim that the universe is still expanding. How are they able to measure that? How are they able to prove that? Well, they can take, 
a, a version of the universe and test the theory. And so they've done that and they have deduced that the universe is still expanding. Makes all the sense in the world. God said, let there be light. And he never told light to stop. Okay. So that makes sense. The universe is still expanding. So then here's my problem. I'm at a disadvantage. The universe has had a head start. See, heaven is at the border or it begins at the end of the universe. Let me say it this way. Heaven begins at the end of an ever expanding universe. So I would forever be chasing an ever expanding universe. But in the event that I caught up to that ever-expanding universe, Paul said Jesus dwells in unapproachable light. So that's not going to work. That means the only other way that I can get there would have to be by gate, portal, or doorway. You know, like uh, when Paul said, I knew a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Only God knows how he was caught up to the third heaven. Paradise, the house of God. Enoch went there. Elijah went there. Okay, so I can see why they might think that this son of man is Elijah, being that Elijah was a prophet and Elijah did not see death. Verse 14 says, others said, maybe Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter. Oh, what did the boldness look like coming upon him? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ. The son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says this in verse 18. And I also say to you, why does he use the word also? He says, I also say to you that you are Peter. See, what did he say to him at first? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. He says, and on this rock, I will do what? I will build my church and the gates of Hades specifically. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. All right, let's unpack this because there's a lot here and there's a lot that we've missed over time. For one, most of us have assumed that Jesus was making a defensive declaration. In other words, we, the kingdom, would be on the defense. Okay? But I submit to you, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And I'll show you why in a second. But let's deal with this Peter first. Let's deal with Simon son of Jonah. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And he says, and I also say that you're Peter. He says, you're Peter. 
you, you're Peter. Now, now, for the longest, there have been numerous of those who assumed that Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And so, it has been believed that Peter was the rock that Jesus was building his church on. Now, how many of you know that if that were the case, we're all in trouble? <laughs> because Jesus, who is infallible, and his word, who is infallible, cannot afford to build his church on one who is fallible. On one who is flawed. As a matter of fact, the Bible is very clear that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Jesus did not build his church on Peter. Jesus built his church on himself. But let me tell you how far this belief has gone. All right, the Catholic Church believes Peter was the first pope. They believe Peter was the first pope. And they also believe in verse 19, notice what Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So in other words, the, the, the false belief was that Jesus was saying, you're Peter, and on you, Peter, I'm building my church, and I give you, Peter, the keys. This is why the Pope is viewed the way he's viewed. Because he's believed to be the only one who has the keys. And in the Bible, when one has keys, it means one has authority. That's why he has so much authority. But Jesus was never giving one man all authority. All right. Let's look at verse 17 again. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I also say that you are Peter and on this rock. You are Peter and on this rock. You are Peter and on this rock. The Greek word for Peter is Petros. The Greek word for rock is Petra. So it's the same Greek root word, but still two different words. What rock was Jesus referring to? Jesus was referring to the rock that came out of Peter's mouth. What rock was that? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, and I say to you, you're Peter, and what you just said is what I'm building my church on. Okay. Now that he's established that, Verse 18, he says, and I also say to you that you're Peter on this rock. I'll build my church. And he says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, the church. Okay, that's an interesting statement. I would have to then ask this question. How could the gates of Hades? For a moment, think that they would prevail. Against the church. How, how could the gates of Hades be foolish enough to think that they could prevail against the church? I'm convinced that Jesus had to be saying something else here. And here's why. What is hell? 
That's right. Essentially, it's a prison. Isn't that what hell is? Spirits have been confined to hell. As a matter of fact, we read in Luke 16 that there is a rich man who found himself in the torments of Hades. He wanted Lazarus to leave Abraham's bosom and go preach to his brothers. Abraham said that's not possible. In other words, we're stuck here and you're stuck there. And there's a great gulf fixed in between us so that we can't cross. In other words, Abraham was letting the rich man know you're stuck where you are. You can't leave. Okay, so if Hades is a prison that holds those who have rejected God, rejected Christ, or rejected the way, and in addition to that, where is Hades? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 12, an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and I'm only giving it one, the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he then says this, as Jonah was in the belly of the monster, three days and three nights, so would the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. That tells me hell is in the heart of the earth. Hell is a prison in the heart of the earth. And hell is a prison which keeps its inmates. They do not get released. They do not get time off for good behavior. They remain there. As a matter of fact, the only release that those in Hades will receive is the release before they're dumped into Gehenna, the lake of fire. With that being established, let's use a little common sense. Where is the church? The church is on the earth. Where's Hades? In the heart of the earth. So how could the gates of Hades be a threat to the church? Think about it. If hell is in the heart of the earth and the church is on the earth, how could the gates of Hades prevail against? It's impossible. No one leaves hell. Hell's in the heart of the earth. It's in the earth's core. So there's no way that Hades could be a threat to the church. And yet Jesus says the gates of Hades will not prevail. What's he saying? Oh, let's dig a little deeper now. In verse 13, notice it says, when Jesus came into the region of, the region of where? Caesarea Philippi. But would you agree with me that this is an interesting name for a Jewish region? Doesn't sound Jewish to me. Sounds, sounds kind of Greek and Roman. Now, normally when you're a world power, you march into whatever land you want, you do whatever you want, and you'll even rename territories that had an original name, but because you're in charge, you do what you want. Clearly, Caesarea, that's Caesar. Philippi, Phil, Philip, that's a Greek name. Okay, so this is, this is Greco-Roman. That couldn't have been the original name. 
What was the name before Caesarea Philippi? I'm telling you, in that name are clues. Ah, oh, it's very important. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi used to go by many names, but I only want to bring up the name it went by before it was Caesarea Philippi. It was referred to as Peneus. Now, what's interesting about Peneus? Well, Peneus was a holy site dedicated to one of the Greek gods known as Pan. And Pan was the wild satyr god. Pan was the god that had the torso and face of a man, but the horns of a goat and the lower extremities of a goat. So it was the half goat, half man god. Now, one of the interesting things about the image of Pan is that his image gave birth to the traditional image of the devil that we're familiar with. The goat face, the horns. Now, it used to be called Peneus, a site dedicated to a deity that gave birth to the image of, of, of the devil. No longer is it Peneus. It's now Caesarea Philippi, but that doesn't mean the spirit of Peneus is absent. Now, in addition to its previous name, where exactly was Caesarea Philippi located? Caesarea Philippi was located at the southwestern base of Mount Hermon. What's significant about Mount Hermon? A long time ago, in a book called Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, angels came down, saw human women, took them as wives, and gave birth to giants. Mount Hermon is where the watchers descended in the days of Jared to take human women as wives and give birth to a hybrid that was never supposed to exist. And those hybrids, those giants, when the flood killed them, you know where their spirits went? They stayed right here on earth. They're the demons you and I are very familiar with. Their bodies were destroyed during the flood. See, remember now, what was a giant? A giant was half human, half angel. There is no redemption plan or punishment plan for that kind of creature. So their bodies remained on the earth. They've been tormenting mankind ever since, looking for bodies to occupy, because that's how demons work, right? They look at the body as a house. Remember what Matthew 12 said. When an unclean spirit is driven out of a man, he goes through dry places, looking for somewhere else. He can't find anything else. He comes back to his, the Bible says, his house, which is the body of that man he left. He comes back to the body of that man. He finds it swept and in order. He then goes and takes seven more spirits, more wicked than himself, and the eight of them take up residence in that man. Demons don't have bodies, so they have to possess. So now think about this. Southwestern base of Mount Hermon is literally the birth of the giants and the birth of demons. My goodness. In addition to that, we have the spirit of Pan, basically the image of the devil, present here as well. And Jesus is, of all places, he's having a conversation about who he is. (laughs) 
traditionally, I've had this idea that what Jesus was doing is that he was seated somewhere and his disciples were around him and he was asking the question. But I no longer, I don't believe that. I believe Jesus was talking trash. In other words, what he was doing was, he, listen, he was near the cave of that ancient God and he was saying, hey, hey, who do they say that I am? What y'all done heard about who I am? What he was doing, listen, he wasn't saying that the church is going to take up a defensive posture against Hades. Absolutely not. Hades is not a threat. Oh, but he was specific, wasn't he? He said the gates. What do gates do? Yep, everything you said is right. Everything you said is right. I heard you. Some of you said gates open. Some of you said gates close. Some of you said gates keep things in. And some of you said gates keep things out. You're all right. Exactly. But specifically, being that Hades is a prison and the inmates can't get out, let's just go with this one. The gates of Hades keep something in. And Jesus said the entrance would not prevail against the church. But once again, once again, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the gates of hell are where hell is, that means the gates also are in the heart of the earth. Once again, not a threat. What else is Jesus saying here? Turn to Psalm 24. Oh, there's never enough time. Psalm 24. Okay, fine, fine verse, fine verse, fine verse 7. Psalm 24, 7. Are you there? All right, look at what it says. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Remember earlier we were talking about portals and doors and entrances. How else do you think a demon views a human? As an entry point, maybe? As a gate, maybe? What if what Jesus was saying was that the entry points that lead people to Hades would not prevail against the church? Now, the entry points are on the earth where the church is. What? what think about it. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall what? Shall come in. Oh, now wait a minute. When a demon possesses someone, that means the demon came in. That means somebody's door was open. That means somebody left their gates open. And the demon had an entryway, had an entry point. How can a gate lift up his head? A gate must be something else other than a gate. If a gate can lift his head up. Now head back over to Matthew 16. Let's try and wrap this up. All right, lift up your heads, oh, oh ye gates. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, gates of gates of gates of hell, gates of Hades. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. See, this is the thing about the word of God. The word of God is manifold. The word of God is multi. The Bible says we know in part. I only know a little bit. Even if what I'm telling you is something you haven't heard, there's more that I don't know. 
because we know in part. The Bible says we look in a mirror dimly. The picture will not be clear until later. We're still figuring this thing out. God is multi-layered, therefore his word is multi-layered. Oh, goodness. Okay. What if Jesus was saying that you are Peter and on the rock of truth that you just spoke that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I'm going to build my church on that rock. And the gates that lead to Hades or those who lead to Hades, mind you, they were already here before the church. They were already here before the church. Jesus is saying, I have something for those gates. Jesus is saying, we're taking a fight to them. Those gates, once again, could not be referring to the heart of the earth. They have to be referring to something that's on the earth if they're not going to prevail against the church which is on the earth. And I submit to you, gates are people. Did you know people, now, now watch this, Yes, it's the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's God who made salvation available. But the Bible says, how can they hear without a preacher? Which tells me that people are gates that lead others to heaven. Would it then work the same way? That people can be gates that lead people to hell. Those are the gates that will not prevail against the church. Jesus says we're taking a fight to them. Oh, but guess what else Jesus was saying? How do you get to hell? You got to die. So Jesus was saying, I am waging war on death right now. We know he picked a fight with death because he snatched the keys from death. He told death, you no longer have authority over yourself. I have authority over you. All right, let's keep reading now. Look at verse 19. Okay, now we know he wasn't just talking to Peter. He was talking to all of us. He was talking to disciples. What are disciples? Students, pupils, those who learn. That's you and I. Yeah, we're Christians. Yeah, we're children of God. We are disciples. So when he was speaking to the disciples, then he was speaking to us now. And he was saying to the disciples, not just to Peter, but to the disciples. Verse 19, I'll give you. In other words, I'll give you who follow me the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, I will give you who follow me the authority of the kingdom. I give you kingdom authority. And then he says this, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. Does that mean that something happens on earth first and then it happens in heaven? No, what it's saying is, whatever play you make in the name of the kingdom, heaven backs you. In other words, Michael the archangel is up in heaven right now saying, did you hear what he said? Did you hear the words that came out of those kingdom citizens' mouths? Go! Now, as I close out, remember that Jesus gave his disciples authority. Authority over what? Authority over unclean spirits? To do what? To cast them out? To heal all manners and types of sickness and disease? In other words, to do kingdom works. Jesus gave his followers. Let's not limit it to the disciples. Because we know he gave the 12 
and we know he gave the 70. And then when he said all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, he then said go. When he said go, that was the transfer of authority in the earth realm. Think about it. He was going to heaven. Right now he's in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. What good does authority do him on earth if he's in heaven? But he is in the earth because his body is in the earth. So the head conducts kingdom business in the heavenlies and the body conducts kingdom business with the head's authority in the earth realm. So you and I are taking the fight to the gates and they shall not prevail. Amen. All right.